welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I don't see any children staying in the service. I was just going to give parents a head up, heads up that even uh, slightly older children might want to head to the back today as we deal with uh, some specific situations going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But I do think all the ones I was concerned about went on went on back. So the word got out somehow. So <laughs> good. Um, this morning, if you would please turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. Um, Last time we were in Genesis, we studied chapter 18, which asked the question, is God just? I mean, this is really one of the first times in the scriptures that this question is even asked or dealt with, is God just? Is God just to choose whom he will bless? Is God just to punish and destroy rebels? Or is God just to put the righteous to death with the wicked? This is a question that was specifically asked by Abraham. The scriptures, the scriptures repeatedly claim that God is just. No matter the circumstances, no matter how unfair things may seem to us, God is just, which means that He does what is right and good, always. The reason we sometimes struggle with the idea of God always being just is because we forget that the greatest good that could possibly done in this world is for God to be glorified through all things. That is the greatest good that could possibly be accomplished in this world. The greatest good is for God to be publicly put on display in every facet of his character. The reason God created the world and the reason God plan to permit this world to fall into chaos and rebellion is so that his character would be revealed and then praised in the sight of everything that he had made. He created the world in order to reveal his mercy and his wrath, his love and his hatred of sin, his beauty and his fear-inspiring presence. He created the world to, show, to showcase His wisdom in creating and His justice in destroying. To show His kindness in saving and His severity in condemning. And when this world comes to an end, every human being will stand before the judgment seat of God. And the scriptures tell us in Isaiah 45 and in Romans 14, it tells us, At that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. To God, it goes on to say, to God shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. That means all those who who professed or proclaimed God is unjust At the end of the world, even his enemies will bow the knee and praise him and say, you are just. Even those receiving the condemnation of eternal death will bow the knee and declare that God is just, that he is good and right in all that he does. If that is true, 
then we as the church must guard our mouth and our thoughts against ever charging God with injustice because there will come a day when we will see Him as He truly is and in that moment every mouth will praise Him and declare that He is just. That was the focus of Genesis 18. That the all-knowing and all-powerful Creator of the universe is also always just. As we move, though, into Genesis 19, this theme will continue. God is going to show His people an example of His kindness, but also of His severity. In one story, God is going to give us a picture of both His terrible wrath on the ungodly, but also of His incredible mercy towards those who believe in Him. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, we, we, see, we see these words and it gives us an, an idea of why Old Testament stories like this one are even recorded. Why did God put the story like this one in the scriptures? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So it's, it's as an example of who God is and of what's going on in this earth and of God's coming day of wrath but also for our instruction, this idea of imparting wisdom and knowledge to us, not just so our heads can be filled, but so that we will respond to these truths, so that we will look at this story and respond to God the, prop, the proper way in faith and obedience. So as we approach this terrible account of human depravity in Sodom and Gomorrah, we must remember that God recorded it as a warning to the world to flee from sin, and to run to God, who is our only hope. That is why this story is here, and that is why it is good and right for us to spend time looking at this and studying it in God's Word. So right before we read, um, just a quick background of where we're at. Genesis 18, Abraham is at his tent, and three angelic visitors um, meet him at the door of his tent. We later find out that one of the visitors is actually the Lord, and he's with two of his angels, and they come in the form of men and speak with um, Abraham. Abraham feeds them, and the Lord reveals that he is the all-knowing one, who is all-powerful, and that he's going to give Sarah a son. And then at the end of their conversation, as they're walking away, he looks down over Sodom and God reveals to Abraham, he's going to judge Sodom. He's sending his angels to Sodom to find out their wickedness. And the implication is that he is going to destroy Sodom for their wickedness. And then they have that conversation where Abraham is, is shown the kindness of God, even in this destruction, where God says, if there are only ten righteous people in this entire region, I will spare it. And that is where the story ends at chapter 18. And we're going to now pick up in Genesis 19, where the two angels that were with God at that time have now left. They've gone down to Sodom, and we now pick up this story. We'll just read through verse 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to the face, his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, 
No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the, the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves themselves out groping for the door until there. And so as we as we see, this is just a terrible, terrible story of human depravity. And I won't have time to get to all the way to it today, but shortly hereafter God does rescue Lot and his family out of Sodom, and then he rains down fire on Sodom and the the inhabitants of the entire plain. So these are several cities uh, that were in a specific region. And God destroys those cities. And the only ones who are spared are Lot and his family and one small town that is spared for Lot's sake because God allows Lot to escape to Zoar and he finds shelter there. And so as we, as we jump into this passage and we looked on God's severity on this kind of human depravity, this ungodliness, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him, to help us as we study his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I, I do thank you for it, even though sometimes we read it and we're like, wow, can I, this is really not something I want to sit down at the dinner table and read to my family. But Lord, your, your word is what we need to see in this age. It is what we need to examine and take to heart in our day. This is not some distant story that that is far removed from us no lord this this these types of things are happening in our day in our community around us we see it on the news father would you help us to um, come to your word hum, hum, humble and ready to receive your wisdom help us to to lay down to forsake the wisdom of our society but instead to accept the wisdom of our god would you do that for your glory and for the good of your people? Amen. This is what we know um, from Scripture about Sodom. So I just I went through Scripture and I found everything I could find about that would help us understand what's going on in this city. Genesis 13 tells us it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So it's, it was paradise is what this passage is saying, paradise. It was green and lush, and there was water everywhere. Genesis 13 also tells us the men of Sodom were wicked, 
great sinners against the Lord. Genesis 18 then says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and their sin was very grave. This is God's description. Then later, after Sodom's destruction, Ezekiel is looking back on this this civilization, and he's commenting on them. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters, or the city of Sodom and the other cities that surrounded them in this region, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. In verse 50, they were haughty or proud and and did an abomination before God. That's Ezekiel. Then in the New Testament, Jude in verse 7 says this, They, speaking of Sodom, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Or that could also be translated, they pursued different or strange flesh in their lust. Sodom with its surrounding cities was a prosperous and wealthy Society. I mean, sometimes when we just read through the Bible, we think of this as like some backwater town. They're just kind of like a bunch of gangsters. They're all living in the slums. They're all poor. They're just uneducated. No, that's just simply not the case. In Genesis 14, we saw how, the, how these cities of the plain were so wealthy and prosperous that four mighty kings from the north spent an entire year gathering an invasion army in order to plunder the wealth of Sodom and enforce tribute from them. This was not some poor village which lacked proper government officials or proper secular education. Sodom was the place to go if you were looking for incredible wealth, comfort, and ease. They had arrived as a society to the point where the vast majority of people had excess of food and prosperous ease, like Ezekiel said. He's writing under the inspiration of God, and God has revealed to them that they had plenty. They were wealthy. They were full of food and ease. But what we see in the Scriptures and throughout history is that when human civilizations evolve and advance without the fear of the Lord, they actually decay and sink into moral perversion. Think of the great and mighty civilization of Noah's day. For roughly 2,000 years, from, the, from creation to up until the, the flood, there was roughly 2,000 years where civilization thrived and flourished without the fear of the Lord. And when God looked down on them after 2,000 years, he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6-5. Then, much later, when Israel now has their kings and they're actually thriving as a civilization and they increased and prospered, At that time, they forgot their God. They abandoned their God and pursued idols. And God says to them that within a very little time, you were more corrupt than Sodom in all your ways. That's Ezekiel 16. Think of the Greeks and the Romans who came later. 
They are incredible examples of ancient civilizations thriving and flourishing. Some of their, their great buildings are still there standing today in all their glory. But to this day, their immorality and sexual perversion are famous throughout history. It's famous, their perversion. And now, as we look around us today, we see civilization like in Europe and in the Americas. They have entered into a golden age of economics, wealth, prosperity, education, arts, theater, technology, and to the point where now it's just like a golden age of even entertainment. There is just so much wealth. Even as these civilizations advance, we, are, we as the church are witnessing the rejection of God and their warm, welcoming embrace of immorality and perversion. South Africa is not immune. As South Africa attempts to keep up with the advancement of other civilizations around the world, it is now warmly embracing the immorality and perversion of its older siblings. To the extent that in my lifetime, South Africa has turned from a nation whose teachers publicly read the Bible every morning in public schools to now being a nation that wants to educate your children about sex changes or encourage teenage abortions without having to consult with parents or call it hate speech to proclaim the gospel that all who make a practice of sinning deserve to die in the fires of hell, but that all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. Some want to make that hate speech. Do not think for one moment that we will be able to live out the rest of our lives in Christian peace and tranquility here in George. I just do not think that that is guaranteed to us as we look at the society around us. Our society is growing increasingly intolerant of anyone who does not join in on their immorality or approve of their sexual perversion even. This is what happened in Sodom. They were wealthy, at ease, civilized, and consumed with their unrestrained lust. And when they come to Lot's house in order to violate the angelic visitors who had entered their town, Lot pleads with them not to do such a wicked thing in the sight of God. But the men of Sodom had no fear of God. They did not know him or honor him as God or as the judge or as the creator of the universe. So since they did not know him, they respond to Lot exactly as you would expect them to. They say to Lot, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with Lot than with those, with those angels. The Sodomites became angry with Lot and threatened to do him harm because Lot did not rejoice in their deeds, but instead rebuked them for their wickedness. Church, this is where our modern civilization is headed. In fact, several modern nations are already there. For instance, in Canada, if your 12-year-old son confesses to you that he is experiencing homosexual temptations and you respond by asking your pastor to sit down with you 
and your son and explain the clear teaching of Scripture. You just invited your pastor over to explain the Word of God to you and your son about this topic. If you do that, then you and your pastor have committed a crime which is punishable by up to five years imprisonment. They, can, they call it conversion therapy, and they equate it to child abuse to tell your son that he needs to fight one of his homosexual temptations. It's against the law. These types of laws are also being pushed for approval in the European Union, as well as in the United States. And South Africa is not far behind. The progression of human civilization that is devoid of the fear of God sinks into immorality and perversion, and they will not tolerate your rebuke of their wickedness. This means that societal norms cannot be your standard for living because society will drag you down to hell with it. Even some of society's better goals, like getting into the best university in the country or providing wealth, health, and ease for your wife and children, or as a, as a woman, having beauty and popularity and intelligence, like, like encouraging these things in women, even these things which are not evil in and of themselves, but even these things are pursued by our society in a godless way as if they could provide abundant life, as if those things could provide you and guarantee you abundant life. That the only thing that guarantees abundant life for now, for today, and for all eternity is that you and your family fear God as the creator and judge of the universe. That you love God as your personal savior and then that you obey God as your Lord and King. Modern society cares nothing about the only things that give abundant life. As our society and culture decays into godlessness, we must grow ever more comfortable with being outcasts for the sake of following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The approval and acceptance of society is not worth facing the wrath of Almighty God on all those who practice ungodliness. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is first and foremost an example and a warning of God's coming wrath on the ungodly. Over 20 times, from Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures reference back to the destruction of Sodom as an example of God's wrath. 2 Peter 2, verse 6 tells us that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this regional catastrophe is supposed to demonstrate in a physical and visual way the coming judgment of God on all those who remain in rebellion against God. You are either washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and are welcomed into his gates, into his kingdom, or you remain outside his kingdom and are judged by fire with the rest of the world. 
Safety from the fire of God's wrath can only be found by forsaking the world, leaving it behind you, and then coming to Jesus empty-handed, crying out in faith for His mercy. That is how I found safety from the wrath of God. And if you are sitting here today and are saved, are born again, then that is how you were saved from the wrath of God by entering into the kingdom of God and forsaking Sodom. However, the sad reality is that many people today claim the title of Christian, but they reject God's terms of entrance into his kingdom. They want to have Sodom and salvation. But God says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then in verse 19 goes on to say, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may be sitting here thinking that I have done some of these things. I have been immoral or greedy or gotten drunk. And I did all these things after I was born again, after I received the Lord Jesus Christ and he washed me clean. I have done all these things after that. What now? Thankfully, passages like 1 John chapter 3 help us understand the difference between a Christian who falls into sin and the unbeliever who makes a practice of sinning. 1 John chapter 3 verse 7 says this, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, he's speaking about God, as God is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Through this passage, we see that the Christian, as a child of God, practices righteousness. We strive to please God. And when we sin against God, we confess our sin as sin. We say, God, you are right. I am wrong. We turn from it. We confess it. And we seek forgiveness. But the unbeliever does not confess their sin. 
or turn from their sin. There's no genuine repentance. And they oftentimes won't even acknowledge that their deeds are sinful. Instead, instead of confessing and turning, they instead make a practice of sinning. That is the trajectory of their life, is to pursue their sin and find excuses for their sin, many times using the scriptures as their excuse. And their actions reveal that their God is in fact the devil. That's what that passage was saying. There are those today who claim the title of Christian while making a practice of sinning. But even worse than that, there are Christian teachers, and I'm using that word Christian in its broad sense. They, they claim the title of a Christian teacher, Christian preacher, or, or pastor. They claim that title, but then they twist the Holy Scriptures in order to excuse the perverse lusts of their own flesh. Churches around the world today are bowing the knee to Satan and are accepting as holy the wicked deeds of the LGBTQIA plus movement. Churches are full of so-called theologians who explain away the wickedness of Sodom and then accuse you of legalistic judgmentalism because you hold to the teaching of Scripture. But church, let me be as clear as I possibly can be by quoting the words of Jesus. This is from Mark chapter 10, the words of our Lord and Savior. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Creator made you male or female. You do not have a say in the matter. And then he instituted marriage to, between, to be between one biological man and one biological woman for life until death parts you. And then as a wedding gift to marriage, God gave the incredible gift of becoming one flesh, of being sexually joined. This is God's design since the creation of the world and the rest of Scripture has only ever affirmed this design. Therefore, any sexual activity outside this one flesh marriage relationship is a perversion, a twisting of God's design and is sin that must be confessed and turned from. You cannot make a practice of sexually sinning against God and enter into the kingdom of God. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to the church of God, warning them of the false teachers who would pervert the design of God and the grace of God. These words are God's words to the church today. Jude, beginning in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about the gospel, the truth of God that was delivered to them faithfully. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This verse is essential for us to understand. It says these false teachers are perverting or twisting the grace of God into sensuality, which means ungodly sexual pursuit. These false teachers were saying, Jesus died to set you free, so be free. Everything is permitted. Pursue your desires without thought to the coming day of judgment. Jude clearly states that this teaching is a perversion of grace. They have twisted the freedom in Christ into something abhorrent to God, something he hates. Jude now continues with a fiery warning in verse 5. He says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So one, that's the first biblical example he gives of rebelling against God's design, God's word. Verse 6, the second example. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's the second example of even angelic beings who rejected the design and the purposes of God. And they are now kept for the judgment. Third example, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Those are the three examples. And he's now going to point at these false teachers and say this is what they're doing. Verse 8. Yet in like manner these people, these false teachers also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These words describe the teachers and preachers of the so-called church today who have bowed the knee to Satan and have welcomed the sins of the LGBTQIA plus movement into the church. You cannot stand and say homosexuality is holy without perverting the grace of God into sensuality. By bowing the knee to society, they have denied, these teachers have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I realize most of you sitting here today have heard all of this before and accept it. After all, if you've read the scriptures, the matter is very clear. But some of you may be feeling torn or conflicted. You may have sons or daughters who are caught up in the world's rejection of God's design. 
You may have parents, uncles, aunts, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, or friends who are participants in, the, in this movement. Who are simply living in a, in a sinful, heterosexual lifestyle. That's where a man and a woman live together outside God's design, without the bond, the covenant of marriage. You may be struggling right now to take the courageous, God-honoring step forward in your thinking and belief that if the Bible is true, then all those who make a practice of sinning will not enter the kingdom of heaven and are destined for destruction in the eternal fire. We know we are the children of God because we practice righteousness. We confess sin and turn from it. We seek the glory of God and we do not make a practice of sinning. We do not scour the scriptures to find a proof text that is going to permit me to pursue unrighteousness. So what do we do with all of this? What do we as a church, as individuals who love God and want to evangelize the lost and love, love our family members who are caught up in this movement, what do we do with this? Should we shun anyone who's part of the LGBTQIA plus movement? Should you avoid your coworker who is sleeping with his girlfriend? No. The scriptures say no. The point is not to become afraid of sinners out there in society. After all, we must remember that we are no more than saved sinners. And the point is absolutely not to become hateful or proud towards those who are currently practicing sin. No. The goal of showing you the truth this morning is so that you will believe the truth. So that we as a church will never be led astray by all the false teachers who are out there. And so that you can go out and proclaim the good news to those who are blinded by the devil and are on their way to hell. When you accept the truth, this truth revealed in scripture that those who are in this movement or those who are making a practice of sinning and are rebelling against God's design, when you receive this truth by faith that they are on their way to hell, then it will stoke the flames of your compassion for the lost and you will go to them with the truth of God's word, seeking to snatch them from the flames, as the scriptures say. But if you don't believe that, then why would you evangelize them? Why would you go through the painful process of rebuking them for their sins and facing their rejection, possibly? So what does this look like? What does it look like to, to love these people well with the gospel, with the truth spoken in love? Is your daughter, for example, is your adult daughter a lesbian? Then show her the love of Christ through your actions and deeds. Make sure she knows you care about her soul. You're not just focused on trying to get her to obey the house rules because that's what you believe. No. Make sure she knows you care about her soul 
as she stands as an individual before the judge of the universe. Make sure she knows that. Pray for her. Plead with God to do what you cannot. But by all means, please, do not give her false hopes of spending eternity with God. Never give her hope of spending eternity with God simply because she said a prayer when she was seven. Or when she was twelve, she got baptized. Do not give those who are making a practice of sinning, do not give them hope that they are right with God. Because then they will continue blinded by the devil. The most loving thing you can do is to believe that the truth, is to believe the truth that they are in danger of the fires of hell and to call them and to warn them, to call them to repentance and to warn them of the day of judgment to come. Is your brother sleeping with his girlfriend? Then talk to him about it. Tell him you are terrified that God's wrath is going to be poured out on him. Don't just go on with life like nothing is wrong. True love doesn't stand by while my brother plunges head first into hell. Maybe you know that you have made a practice of sinning without confession, without genuine turning away, without any signs of growth in practicing the righteousness of Christ without a true love for God or for his people. If that is you, I plead with you. Leave Sodom behind you. Run to Jesus with empty hands and plead for his mercy and grace to forgive you and save you from your sins. He is gracious and kind. He will wash away every sin. He will make you white as snow and he will give you the ability to begin doing the works of righteousness that can only be done through his spirit within you. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to be an example of what will one day happen to the ungodly. Those who reject the creator by refusing to bow the knee to his son will one day be judged with fire This is an example of God's severity toward all rebellion. But next week, I want to focus on the other part of the story. God's kindness towards those who trust in him. I really didn't have time to focus on Lot and his family. They have some serious issues. We read even about part of it this morning. But despite Lot's failures... God demonstrates kindness to him because Lot believes in him and trusts in him. And this is our hope. That despite our struggles with temptation and to sin, despite that, that God is gracious and kind to forgive us our sins as we turn from them and trust in his son, the lamb who was slain. Let's pray.